Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by founding pastor Ken Warline and was recorded on Mother's Day, Sunday, May 14th, 2023. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for our online service called FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Ken. Well, good morning. I'll add my happy Mother's Day to those that have already been stated. So glad that you're here. Whether you're in our live service, whether you're in our communion venue, whether you're online, however it is that you're here, we're really glad. Why don't you take your Bibles and we're going to go to Acts chapter 9. And if you need a Bible, why don't you wave at one of the ushers coming down right now and they'll be glad to spot you one and it's yours to keep if you need. So while you're turning to Acts chapter 9, I want to give you a little multiple choice quiz. Here's the question. When you are shown a mugshot of a killer or a terrorist, comes up on your phone or on TV, I'm wondering what your first thought is. Is your first thought A, I wonder why he became such a bad person? Or is it B, at least they caught him and they have him locked up now? Or is it C, hell will not be hot enough for him? Or D, we need to pray that God's amazing grace will transform him into a great leader in our church. Okay, that's the quiz. So who here, honesty here now on Mother's Day, who here answered D? Raise your hand. Not even one. Boy, did you come to the right sermon, all right? You sinners, all right, so. Truth be told, I tend to default to one of the first three as well, which is why I think this week the Lord reminded me, you must never underestimate what I, the Lord, can do in a person's life. I was thinking of John Newton. You remember who John Newton was? He was a British slave trader. He was a sailor. And in 1748, he was on a ship going overseas and a terrible storm comes up and he thought that he was surely going to die and they were all going to drown. And for the first time since he was a little boy before his mom died when he was six, he reached out for God and he prayed with earnestness like never before and something happened. And the next year, he would write what would become the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. Because he just couldn't shake the fact that God looked down upon him, a traitor of slaves, a wretch like him, and had enough grace to pardon him and enough power to put him in a pulpit where he would preach that gospel message for years to come as a pastor. And we're going to see the same thing happen in our text today with another character. But first, let's just remind ourselves where we've been as we're journeying through the book of Acts. So the first eight chapters, we've seen the Holy Spirit come. There's revival that's happened and Jewish people primarily 
in Jerusalem have been trusting in the risen Christ, being filled with his spirit, and then that's spreading to all of Judea around Jerusalem, and then it leaps over the banks and goes up north to a non-Jewish region called Samaria. And then last week, uh, as I showed you on the map, we went down beneath Judea and we began talking about a man, Ethiopian, who represented the ends of the earth. What Jesus had said was going to happen is now happening. The gospel's going out to all the world. And today he's going to burst forth with the person who is going to be the great carrier of that gospel to those of us who are called Gentiles. That's any of us who come from non-Jewish background. That would be most of us. Though some of you have told me your stories of your descent from Judaism. So <clears throat> that's uh, where we've been. And we're going to talk about this man who's going to be the great preacher, evangelist, missionary to the Gentiles. But he was no Gentile. He was a Jew of Jews. In fact, as Chuck Swindoll says, when we first see him, he looked a whole lot more like a terrorist than a devout Jew. His name was Saul, and he was a budding leader among the Pharisees. He was an up-and-comer. He'd grown up there in Jerusalem, steeped in their traditions, educated at one of the finest boarding schools available to Jewish boys, taught by the master teacher Gamaliel. And we first saw him a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 8. Remember when Stephen, the kind-hearted Christian, gets stoned to death, the first Christian martyr, and it says that they laid their robes at someone's feet. Who, whose feet were those? Those were the feet of Saul, who stood giving approval to what he was watching. Why? Because he hated Christians. He had concluded the Christian sect was a dangerous cult. These people going around saying that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus was alive at that. He said, that's stupid thinking. Who on earth could think of that? Because everybody knows he died on a cross. And everybody in his mind should have known Deuteronomy 21, 23 that said anybody who was hung on a tree is a cursed person. He's cursed. And so Saul would have thought to himself, what do you seriously think I would for a second believe that a poor, obscure carpenter who dies on a tree ends up becoming the Messiah? That's nonsense. It confounded him that anybody could think such a thing. And it confounded a lot of Jewish leaders. But they were, people were believing this. And some of the Christians were actually doing some miracles like their Lord had done. He figured that must be from the devil. So he figured we're going to get rid of them. He became the primary exterminator, leading the genocide to kill the Christians. And <clears throat> so just to get the picture, uh, because I think we can so easily jump to, we know where he's going to go. We know he's going to become the apostle Paul. But we have to stay in this moment while we're in chapter 9. Picture this scene. Imagine you're a child. Imagine you come home from school. 
Imagine there's your grandmother and she's sitting at the table in the kitchen crying and you say, Grandma, what are you doing here and where's everybody else? And she gathers you up in her arms and she said, Honey, they just dragged your mom and your dad away. It was Saul of Tarsus and we know what that means. We probably won't see them ever again. This is the background when we come in to Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if, they, so if, that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they called the Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Apparently, he'd already rounded up all the Christians who were in Jerusalem. And so he's exterminated them, but he figures like roaches, some got out in the great dispersion and we're going to go out and gather them up because if you don't go and gather the ones that avoided the first blast, they'll reproduce and they'll still be out there. And so this is why he sought the letters of extradition to go as far as 150 miles to Damascus because he'd heard there's Christians up there in Damascus. And so he goes to Damascus <clears throat> with the intention of dragging those uh, Christians back and having them killed as well. That was a six-day journey, 150 miles, six-day journey on his feet. But you know the truth of the matter is, as much as he hated the Christians, he'd have walked on his feet for a month if that's what it had taken to have the privilege of getting those Christians. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? He never saw the flash of light coming. It was so bright and so powerful, and it was broad daylight. And what was that flash of light? That was no lightning flash. No, in that moment, our Lord Jesus had seen fit to draw back the curtains of heaven and reveal himself in all of his glory for Saul to see with his own eyes. He's thrown to the ground. He's rattled with confusion. He's so perplexed. What is going on? Who are you? Because he had a problem, and it's a problem that you and I have. We're all egocentric, and we're all ethnocentric. In other words, we take uh, God, and we turn him into our ethnicity, and we make him like us. And so in America, what is God? Well, he's an American, of course. And in Russia, he's Russian. And in China, he's Chinese. And he speaks English, of course. No, he speaks this language. He speaks it. Depends on where you are, right? And if you live in this country, and we'll see this next year, and you're Republican, you know f f for certain God's a Republican, and if you're a Democrat, you say, that's nonsense. God is a Democrat. He always has been, and it's because we make God in our own image, and that's exactly what Saul had been doing. He had been making God in his own image, and so you'd ask, uh, if you'd ask Paul, Saul, back then, what is God like? He'd say, well, if I'll tell you this much, he hates Christians, and he's Jewish, well, why do you think that? Because I know that's the right answer. 
He's like me. See, we do that. But maybe we need uh, to back up and ask the question that Saul was asking. Who are you really, Lord? Because clearly I've gotten this confused. Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. He replied, now get up and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anybody. And so you just have to realize how bumfuzzled he was that this was happening because he's having to, to, to do a whole new calculus. Wait a second. If you, God, are Jesus, that means you, you, you're not anything like what I thought. It means you are alive and they've been telling the truth. And it also means... I've got a real problem. I'm on the wrong side of this battle. Yeah, exactly. And did you notice what Jesus says in verse 8? He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. He doesn't say, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, and you're persecuting my people. No, because he identifies with us. Christ said, you are the body of, you are going to be, Paul said later in one of his letters, you're going to be the body of Christ. That's who we are. We're his plan A. Remember when he says, I'm going back to heaven, I'm sending my Holy Spirit, you're plan A. You represent me. And so he's saying right here, oh, no, no, I identify with Christians, with the church, with a capital C. And so we should always be very careful when we're throwing a stone at another Christian or another church with the little c, which is not to say that, that any church is perfect because none of us are perfect churches. But we have to remember, uh, to the best of our ability, we are trying to pursue him and we're trying to represent him and be his body here on earth. He identifies with us. He realizes, though, now, boy, I'm, I'm in hot water. I'm on the wrong side of this whole thing, which means... Who knows what's going to, is he going to kill me right now? Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and he didn't eat or drink anything. Verse 10, in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision... Ananias. Incidentally, if you're like, I thought he died with Sapphira. Different Ananias, all right? It was a popular name. So don't get those confused. Yes, Ananias answered. Yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man whose name is Ananias, who's coming and placing his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about the man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here now with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all of us who call upon your name. He's pushing back, understandably. God, I'm not sure you've thought this one through. Because he's probably lost some loved ones himself. He probably knows a woman or two or a child or two who are now widowed or orphaned because Saul had seen to it that their dad had been killed. And so Ananias is like, I don't think you got the, I don't think you want me and I don't think you want me to go and pray for him. 
but the Lord doesn't make mistakes. R.C. Sproul writes, all of us love to hear Jesus when he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. But later on, he says to us, now go. And that's where the Christian life gets a little bit more complicated and challenging for us. Jesus, he listened to what Ananias says, verse 15, but then he said back to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to show their kings, uh, to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I'll show him how much he'll suffer for my name. We know that Saul, later Paul, will indeed suffer a great deal. And then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me now so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, let's not rush through this moment. I mean, let's really picture, let's try to capture some of the pathos of the moment. So imagine if you were Ananias, you walk in, you look across that little house and you see a man coiled up, probably kneeling and praying and he's blind and he's perplexed and he's confused. And you say, well, he doesn't look as big and bad as he sounded. And you might give in to your worse urges and march across that room and say to him, you, you are the guy who caused the death of my friend, Stephen. I was friends with him too. And yes, we have heard what you did to him. And look at you now. You were coming up here to get me. You were coming up here to get the others of us, but the Tables have turned on you, blind man. It's about time you got your own comeuppance. Serves you right. But that's not what Ananias says. I'm afraid that might be what some of us would be tempted to say, but he doesn't do that. He walks across the room and he gently lays his hands. The hands that Saul had come to bind. He lays them gently on Saul's head. And he speaks with the voice that Saul had come to silence. And he says those words, brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me that you might receive your sight and that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit now. It's one of the most powerful scenes of grace in the whole Bible. One author I was reading wrote, angels must have sung when they heard these words of forgiveness. Because Saul knew what lay behind him, but he didn't know, where's this going? Where's my life headed in the future? And he wasn't going to get there unless somebody with skin on him came and spoke the words of forgiveness. 
And we need that sometimes, don't we? We can know that God forgives us, but sometimes we have to hear it through another human being. In fact, if you've ever come from, some of you have come from, and others of you, you haven't, so I'll describe, when you go to a higher liturgy church, maybe an Episcopalian church, or uh, sometimes in the liturgy, there's a portion where uh, the priest says, in the name of Christ, you're forgiven. And the people say back, and in the name of Christ, you're forgiven. It's baked into the liturgy. Why? Because Christians throughout history have known we have to speak words of forgiveness to each other. That is what the soul longs for. That's what we depend upon to remind ourselves of the grace that we've experienced and then to give that grace forward to those who need to experience that grace as well. This is, I think, one of the greatest vulnerabilities of the Christian church in America at present. With all the canceling that's going on from extreme to extreme, there's not grace being shown. There's not forgiveness being shown. And yet the Lord said, it is by this very thing, your love, your grace, your mercy, that the rest of the world will look at you and say, oh, wow, there's some disciples of Jesus. Look how different they are. Not different bad, different good, different unique, different than the rest of the world. And I'm not seeing that like... I think we need to be showing that. John Newton, who I quoted earlier at Amazing Grace, he, he would write an interesting thing I was reading. He says, As, it's about controversy. And it's a good word for us because, well, I don't know, maybe you have no controversy. Sometimes I do. As to your opponent, he said, I ask that before you set pen to paper against him, during the whole time that you're preparing to write, first, commit him to the Lord in prayer. This practice will have a direct tendency to soften your heart with love and pity for him. And then that will help you to have, be well influenced as you write whatever you're going to write. If he's a believer, in a little while you'll both meet in heaven and there he'll be dearer to you than your closest friend here on earth. Anticipate that as you prepare your response. And if he's an unconverted person, then he deserves your compassion, not your anger, for he knows not what he's doing. But you do know who has made you different. Above all. Newton was reminding us, we who've trusted the gospel, we who've awakened to the reality that our great God would love us so much that he would come and identify with us and taking the form of a man, he would live the life of sinlessness and die the death of punishment that we could not do. He stood in our place and then he conquered the grave on the third day Newton was saying, hey, if you've accepted this gospel, then you have to be different. Why? Because that's what the Father wants for us. Just this past week, I was, our elder son, Wesley, graduated from high school, and we were having a, a, a celebration with extended family and, and some friends, and and we were going around and everyone was just sharing words of blessing and encouragement. And, and they were all, it was a sweet time. But my younger son, 
William. It came to him and he said some silly things. But towards the end, he said, but Wesley, I love you and you're my best friend. And I'll tell you, well, I don't have to tell you. If you're a parent, you know what that feels like. Isn't that what you want for your children? Now, mind you, we don't, they don't sit around saying I love you all the time. They've, <laughs> they've told each other how much they hate each other plenty of times and pounded each other and all that. And because they're brothers and, and, and that's normal. But they work past that. And in that moment, I thought to myself, if I appreciate hearing that among my children as a father, how much more does our heavenly father in heaven want to hear his children, believers saved by his grace, doing the same among each other, even and especially when it doesn't feel natural. Was it natural for Ananias? No, it wasn't natural. But he was obedient. And he went and he showed the grace to Saul that he needed. Saul will never forget this experience. He'll talk about this day for years to come. It's his testimony. He'll tell it to us in Acts 22. He'll tell it again in Acts 26. He couldn't ever shake that day. Any more than Newton couldn't shake the day he was saved at sea. Any more than we shouldn't be able to shake the day that we experienced God's amazing grace in our own lives either. Saul will, of course, as I said, become Paul, the greatest apostle, missionary, evangelist, influencer, church planter, writer of 13 letters that comprise our New Testament. He'll become, even secular historians say, that people who aren't even people of faith, even they say he really is one of the most influential people in all of history, what Paul did in the ancient Mediterranean world and the impact that was felt in the Christian faith that was perpetuated. By contrast, Ananias, you never hear of him again in scripture. Talk about a one-hit wonder. <laughs> this was his moment, but boy, did he hit big. <laughs> I've just imagined, suppose 30 years or 40 or 50 if he lived that long later and he was gathered with some new people, maybe in a new village and, and they're getting to know each other. So what's your name? What do you do? And he said, well, the name's Ananias and I'm not known for a whole lot. I've tried to walk faithfully with the Lord all of my days and I'm definitely not famous. Except there's this one day, it's <laughs> just one wasn't even the whole day, it was just a couple of hours. But I got an assignment from the Lord. Yeah, what was that? He told me I wanted to go and pray for somebody. And I didn't want to do it. But I did. And I'm glad I did. Because his, his turnaround, you've probably heard of. Yeah, who? The Apostle Paul. What? You're the guy that led him? Yeah, I was the guy that led him to the Lord. I didn't want to go, trust me. I told the Lord, 
I don't think you really want me to do that. I don't think we want to do this, do we? But ever since I've, I've known that I've known that I know, even if it doesn't make sense, just do what the Lord tells you to do because he can use even the most obscure person. And if you ever need proof, just look at me. Ananias would have said, don't ever underestimate how God might use you. But you know what? You know this. You already know that. Intuitively, you know this. And I'll illustrate. I bet any number of you, you could say, well, yeah, there, there is this the person in my life. And he or she made all the difference. Maybe, maybe it was a teacher. And that teacher just called forth something in you. And your life, it was never the same after that. Or a coach. Or maybe it was a pastor or a youth pastor or a counselor or a friend or a neighbor or a relative or... Or maybe it was your mother who we celebrate today on Mother's Day because moms do so much to invest in the ones coming after them. And moms many times wonder, is this doing any good? And is anybody noticing everything I'm doing? Moms never underestimate what God is doing through you. And here's the freeing thing. Not just if you're a mom, but if you're a dad, if you're anybody. We don't have to toot our own horns. We don't have to strike up our own parade and put the spotlight on us because God keeps the books and he'll see to it. 1 Corinthians 4.15 tells us, 4.5 tells us. In the end, therefore, he says, judge nothing before that appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness. He'll expose the motives of the heart. And then at that time, each will receive their praise from God. That's what we look forward towards. So three quick takeaways for you. First, make yourself available. That's what Ananias did. Like Samuel of old, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Like Isaiah of old, say, here I am I, Lord, send me. And then secondly, when he says, okay, go, here's your role. Accept that role, accept the role. That's the hard part for us. Because <laughs> many times if we were writing the script, that ain't the role I wanted, right? The late Jeanette Cliff George, she started the AD Players, the acting group downtown. Um, she, she would tell the story uh, of, of uh, the time when a little girl was not cast in the role that she wanted for a certain play. She was cast in a different role, but not in the one that she wanted. And so in the moment of showtime, when the girl that had been cast said the line that she so wanted to say, she whispered side stage, but loudly enough that others could hear, 
that was supposed to have been my line. I think we could spend way too much time doing the same thing. Just make yourself available, and when he casts you in your role, step into it. Play your role. You may, most of us will not ever be famous like Apostle Paul would become. But you know something, being an Ananias, it's not so bad. There's actually a lot of joy to be found in knowing I'm investing in this person, that person, and the next, and who knows what God might do through them. Which leads to the third thing. Give it your all. That great verse in Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, not as if serving others, but as if serving the Lord. When you go to work tomorrow, you're not serving your boss. You're serving the Lord. When you're serving your family, you're not serving your family. You're serving the Lord. Give it your all, therefore, he says. Because you just never know what he's going to do through you. I'll close with a story one of my preaching mentors used to tell before he went to heaven. Would tell of how he had taken uh, his grandson to an Astros game. The little guy was just three. And he says the lighting and the sound and the stimulus, it was just so much, he, he just, we just couldn't sit still. So we got up and we went and got a hot dog. And then later we went and got the nachos. Then we went and got the ice cream. And we walked here and there. And I don't think we saw much of the game at all, he said. But as we were taking that journey back up the steep steps to our seats, I wasn't paying enough attention to notice that my little three-year-old grandson needed a little help making those steps up. But being a, an enterprising little kid, he'd figured it out. He said, my grandson was putting his hand right on the knee of the next person up, using him <laughs> as his railing. And when I finally realized what was going on, I started to issue a public apology. But then I looked at these people and I saw they weren't uh, grimacing. They were all smiling. Even the ones that were coming next were smiling with anticipation as they saw them coming next for them. He says, it was as if each of them was saying, little guy, if my knee could steady you on your way up, then you go ahead and take hold of it. And I'll help you make the next step. That's who Ananias was in Saul's life before he would become Paul. And that's who I hope that all of us will be as well in the lives of others. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for this great chapter that brings us through the conversion of arguably the most famous Christian ever, 
led to you in clarity by arguably the least famous Christian ever. But what a difference that made. Lord, won't you give us grace like Ananias to play the role that you've given to us, to be obedient, to go all in for it. Whatever it is that you've called us to do, let us do it with all our hearts as if serving you, Lord. Give us your grace. And friends, if you've not trusted in that grace before, why don't you even now, you just pray silently as I pray aloud, you can just borrow my words, something along these lines. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my heart now because I need your forgiveness for my sins. I am asking you to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, to fill me full of your spirit and to show me what it means to follow after you. Won't you teach me how to follow you and to be a person who's uniquely different because of your presence in my life and give all of us, God, the reminder of your grace, which is amazing. All grace is amazing. And help us bask in that and pass that forward in our daily living. We pray it in your strong name, Jesus. Amen.